You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. My conversational partner is Jonathan Pajot. Jonathan is a professional artist, writer, and public speaker. He delivers several lectures every year in universities, conferences, and other venues around Northern America. He speaks on art, but mostly on the symbolic structures that underlie our experience of the world through his YouTube channel and podcast, The Symbolic World. Jonathan also features conversations on symbolism, meaning, and patterns in everything from movies to icons to social trends. I'm really excited, Jonathan. Welcome it's great to, to meet you. Yeah, it's great to meet you. I'm so happy, man, you're here. So I figured that the place I'd love to start this conversation is uh, a few months back, we had Douglas Murray on the show. Um, and when he was on the show, he talked about how in the modern age, we've really pushed forward, say, science and religion. Um, and he talked about these kinds of collapse of grand narratives in particular, religion, he mentioned, was one, and he sort of mentioned this kind of push towards secularism almost. Um, so I would just have to just start with a broad question and say, if it, let's say in the last hundred years that religion has kind of taken a backseat to, say, science and religion, how do you analyze where we are as a society right now? Like, how do you analyze where things are right now? Well, I think that I could say this is going to sound dramatic, but I think we're at the end of something. Um, there are certain ways to understand when you come to the end of a story, let's say, or the end of a pattern. And it seems like we're at the end of some pattern. We're in a crisis, maybe is the best way to understand it. And so I think everybody is, we could say that the world in which we used to live has kind of broken down. And we feel that not only in terms of a breakdown in meaning, but we see it as a breakdown in society as well. As we see uh, fragmentation in discourse, we see groups rising up against each other in discourse for now. But obviously we know that if this continues then it leads to actual physical violence at some point where you know irreducible opposites start to appear, uh, positions that just can't coexist with others. And so this is what we're noticing in terms of the society, but the story as well, there's a fight for the story. Like what is the story of our world? And there's a, there's a fight to know what it is, let's say. Um, and so all of this is a sign that we're in a crisis. We, John Verveke, the cognitive psychologist from the University of Toronto, he, he talks about a meaning crisis. I think it's a good way to understand what's going on. And a lot of it has to do with what Nietzsche announced, let's say, how the, the death of God or the death of Christianity was going to bring about uh, massive amounts of chaos. But it's been going on for a while. And so we could say that World War I, World War II were part of that. And since World War II, we've had a little reprieve. It's almost like a, it's almost like a shock or let's say a post-traumatic uh, you know, moment. And now it feels like the momentum which led to those wars is happening again. The same kind of patterns, the same, the same patterns in terms of extreme uh, 
let's say a desire for extreme variety and degeneracy, and then at the same time, we see these kind of totalitarian moves in culture happening at the same time. So that seems to be where we are. Where we are. I wonder if we are, say, perhaps close to the edge of something. Do you think that is, is it possible to go back? Like, is it possible to, to save things? Like, <laughs> um, I, 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 this is, I, I hate being the apocalyptic one, but I, I feel like things are going to play out, let's say, and um, they can play out, they can play out really bad. They can play out bad, but I think that we're going to go through a difficult time where it, things aren't just going to go back to normal. And, and it's like, it's not just going to happen that things are going to get better just like this. There's going to, there's going to be a difficult time. And hopefully, I mean, one of the things that let's say my hope or the things that I'm doing and people like Douglas Murray, and there are other thinkers out there who I think hopefully are trying to create enough of a, of a bastion to survive the flood, something like an arc, like, like a, let's say a, a, a mini, enough people that have a better understanding of, of history and a better understanding of what makes a person a human, all of these things brought together so that we have something to, to, to survive the flood with. I really like that. I really, really like that analogy. Um, if we go back through history, um, I was thinking back through civilizations, perhaps the Romans or the Greeks, have there been um, perhaps any signs in that, that you're aware of throughout history of civilization like signs that a civilization is on the verge of collapse and are there sort of any patterns with where we are today yeah there are several patterns so you can see that at the towards the end of the roman empire during the crisis right the let's say what do they call the third century crisis there were certain things which were appearing certain manifestations and uh they're pretty universal they there's a for example there's a, a reduction in birth rate People stop having children. They become interested in, in strange aspects of sexuality. Uh, they become interested in strangeness in general. So there's, a, there's an interest in the, the, uh, the bizarre and the perverse, in the upside down, let's say the carnivalesque of society, the idea of Roman civilization and, the, uh, and the, this, the kind of orgy culture, you could say, that was there in late Roman civilization. Uh, and then it leads also to a desire to, how can I say this? It's a, there's also a fetish, fetishizing of the stranger. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, for example, young Roman uh, people in that time of crisis would dress as barbarians. They would take on the tropes of their enemies, basically. Uh, and so there's this, there are many things that, that kind of signal the end of a civilization. And it's not a, it's a, it's kind of like a universal it's a fractal pattern, right? Reality has a, has a fractal structure, you could say. And so you can understand, for example, that at the end of a year in a traditional calendar, you would have a carnival. And this is something that uh, Jews, for example, have at the end of their year called Purim. And in, uh, in Christian cycles, you would have something like Mardi Gras, or you would have the Saturnalia in the time of the Romans. So all, in, and during the Christian Middle Ages, around the time of the Saturnalia, they would have something called the Feast of Fools, or even the feast of the ass, like a, a feast of the donkey. So all of these upside down type of behaviors. Um, and you can understand it also in the society as well. So think about like a, a town and then on the edge of town, the circus will come or a fair, and then there'll be all of this aesthetic of the, of the carnival, right? And so if you want to understand what happens at the end is you can understand it just in terms of 
how though the end of a year would manifest itself in a carnival. You'd have upside down behavior, you'd have uh, lewd behavior, all of this kind of stuff that usually isn't permitted in the society would kind of come out for a day and parade around. And then after that, you would move to normality. Uh, and so that is, so that's a good way to understand. You can say that our world is a carnival right now. Like there's a lot of the aspects of our world is a carnival, but it's a carnival that's reaching towards the end. And so, uh, you know, in the Saturnalia, it was actually crazy because what they would do is they would elect a slave and they would make the slave into like an emperor figure. And they would, he would spend a day of feasting and, and kind of all these sexual stuff that would go on. And then at the end of the day, they would just kill the slave. Mm-hmm. And it was like, that's the end of the carnival. And now we move back to normal. And so what it feels like is that we're towards the end of the carnival and the, the axe is whole is like is right there above our heads and is getting ready to come down. But uh, and we can see that with the COVID as well, like the, the types of measures that are being taken with COVID look like a a kind of authoritarian clampdown, which is on the horizon and it's being justified. It doesn't matter. It almost doesn't matter how it's justified. Right. It's almost like it doesn't matter how we justify the fact that this is happening. It's just happening as a natural procession of a cycle, which is that after a carnival comes the shutdown, comes the, say, the hammer falls, let's say. And so this seems to, and that's what, you know, if you understand World War II, that's what happened just before World War II during the, during uh, Weimar Germany, like Weimar Germany was, we're like Weimar Germany times 10. That's a good way to understand what's happening in our society. You know, all the aesthetics of Weimar Germany, we are imbibing them, but like, in a, at a much higher level. And so then what comes after that is a clampdown sadly, which might seem like at a much higher level than even what happened in World War II. It's not I'm going to frighten everybody, but my, pur- my purpose isn't to frighten people, but I'm just, I just wish people could be able to just see the patterns and to notice that these cycles, like I'm not making it up, like this is something that happens at the end of civilizations. And I think that it's very, um, it's very eye-opening to see those patterns and to kind of see where we are today like one thing i've been thinking about is just how much meaning uh throughout centuries people have derived from religion and i wonder perhaps what your thoughts are on this that as perhaps as we talked about perhaps religion has kind of taken a backseat to science and reason um have people turned towards other means of instantiating meaning like Social justice, for instance, is that where they've turned to? No, that's definitely right. And so one of my contentions is that what we call religion, that term, it has problems, but let's say what we call religion is inevitable. Uh, What you could call something like the ritualization of of existence, the, the, the desire to, let's say, move together towards something which transcends you, which something which is bigger than you, uh, and to do it ritually and to do it through certain mechanisms, uh, which is the definition of an inside and an outside, uh, you know, this idea of processing around the important thing. All of these things are just inevitable. And if we try to get rid of them, they will come back. And, and that's what we're seeing right now. So 2020 was a year of the return of the religious. It just flooded back in through, you know, uh, a weird, a weird uh, fasting, right, at the beginning of COVID, and then a kind of ecstatic, a moment of communion where everybody went into the streets and started to protest and having these communal feasts and 
and there was everything that was religious. There were people processing and kneeling and chanting. And, and so there was everything that you would find in a religious setting uh, was being happened, was happening in the, in these events. But there's also something else which was happening, which is scapegoating. And that's also very important, an important part of the religious pattern, which is the scapegoating. Because scapegoating is what defines your identity is often what defines your identity because you, you identify the, the foreigner, the outsider, the thing that is a kind of a disease, and then you want to eliminate it. And so now we have this weird moment, right? It, it, in, the, in the Floyd protest, we saw that happening where there was this idea that like in the entire world, like the entire world was, was based on racism and every evil could be just like plugged into this one thing. And if we could just like even put it in one person, an orange haired guy, and then we could just all put it in this guy. And then if we could just burn him alive, then the, everything would go away. And it was, it was like, and it, this is a religious, this is a religious ceremony. It's a, we're noticing a religious pattern. Um, and it's a, it's frightening because it's a, it's, it's kind of an out of control religious pattern. It's almost like a, it has something of the mass to it. It has something of the, of almost like a, almost if you think of a Pentheus, you know, in the, in the backy who, 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 who faces this out of control religious manifestation and gets ripped apart by it. You know? That's what we're noticing. That's, at least that seems to be what's happening around us. It's, it's crazy when you put them in terms like that and you realize just how deeply ingrained these values, traditions, ideas are. I wonder, do you think that we'll ever be able to lose those meanings that we did instantiate from religion? Is, is it possible for them to go away? No, I don't think so. That this is also one of the things that, and you also don't want them to go away because true, true. the way that I try to help people understand is that let's say the religious stories, the religious religious patterns, they're actually your, they are your mechanism of perception. Like they're the way that you perceive value in things. And so science has is great. Science is a wonderful tool because it's able to count, it's able to predict, it's able to to. Uh, like accurately quantify phenomena in order to understand it. And like I said, even reproduce it, which is, which is amazing, but it doesn't offer you quality. It doesn't offer you value, right? It, you can use science to create a nuclear weapon and you can use science to, to make a medicine, which will help people, but it's the same science, right? There's no, there's nothing in the science, which tells you what is valuable. And, and that is the religious instinct, the hierarchy what you would call a hierarchy of values is instantiated in the, 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 the hierarchy. When you say God is in heaven, right? And hell is below, is below. All of this is actually just an instantiation of hierarchy. It's, it's, so when you say that something is better or something is superior to something else, you're participating in a religious pattern because you're saying it's closer to God and you can't avoid it. Like you can try to avoid it, but you, you, you would just be running around in circles because you have, the idea of a good. And every time you give value to something, you are pointing towards that good. And that's the religious pattern, right? That's what, that's why we say the gods are above and, you know, the demons are below or all this imagery that we use. It's all, it's all, that's the same thing as any type of valuing has that pattern. I love that, man. I love that. One thing that I was thinking about, I come from a relative scientific background um, and I was thinking about this when I was entering into this conversation. I was thinking that there are just so many things that science kind of can't tell you. Like science can't tell you if you're falling in love with someone. Science can't tell you if you're a good person. What, what do you think that the kind of limits to science are? 
Well, the limit to science is really, it's the impossibility of identifying quality. Sure. So science, science can only describe. And sometimes we think that science can identify quality, but that's because people don't realize that the quality is something that we, we add to the science, right? And so that, let's say you could think of, let's say you could think of science can help you make beautiful flowers, but the, the beautiful flower is not, doesn't come into science. For the science, there's no difference between an ugly flower and a beautiful flower. There's no difference between an apple that tastes good and an apple that tastes bad. It's just different chemicals. But the idea that you would use science to make an apple that tastes better or that is more resistant to germs or that is whatever, that is based on a value system, right? It's based on a hierarchy. And any type of hierarchy cannot be given by science. And I would go even further than that. And I would say that there are no identities which can be given by science, even the identity of mm. something. Like even the fact that we, for example, say that a city is one thing that cannot, that doesn't come from science. We need something, we need something higher to, to tell you this is a city and then we can tell science to study it. Like we can tell, we need something higher to tell us this is a mountain and then we can have science study it. But science itself can't even come to those definitions, can't even understand how multiplicity emerges into unity. You know, how different, like how different phenomena actually appears to us as one. And I always give the example, like the simple example of a chair. It's like a chair is a bunch of stuff. A chair is not one thing. A chair is a bunch of things. It's a million things. It's, a, it's an indefinite amount of things. And so why can't I see it as one thing? How do I do that? And that cannot be accounted for by science. I mean, science can explain the mechanism, uh, let's say, that happens in your brain, but you can't explain the unity of the chair, right? You can't explain it away. It comes through a gestalt, like this, this sense of unity, this jump into unity, you could say. And you can almost, and like in a spiritual way, you would say it's something like a little epiphany or a little like a little, uh, like a, really like a little vision, right? How things come into one. Uh, and and it's, it's, easier to, it's easier to dismiss that, like when it's at a level of a chair, but it's a lot harder to dismiss it when it's at the level of a city, for example, or the level of, of a country, or, the, you know, or, or, or these, these, let's say, larger, uh, or even the level of a family, or the level of, of anything that is beyond the, the you know, the, the simple things, but the simple things have it too. It's just sometimes people don't see it as well. But if you go up higher into the, let's say the hierarchy of beings, then you can't avoid it. You know, you see that that unity is given. It's not, you can't analyze, you can't analyze to the unity. You can't get there. Yeah, man, I, I really love that. I really love that. And I definitely think that there is a kind of, there's a domain of facts and there's a domain of values. And I completely agree that, you know, I wouldn't want to put all my faith in a civilization in the hands of science. You know, uh, there has to be values too, type of thing. Um, yeah. but there's, would... there's something else going on. It's really important to see is that there, because you can't avoid it, right? because you can't avoid the value. What happens is that when someone says it's just science, they've got a card behind their back. And sometimes they don't know, and I will give them the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes they don't even know that they have this card hidden behind their back, but I think sometimes they do. And so they say something like, follow the science. But the science doesn't lead you anywhere. I'm sorry, that's not, doesn't happen. There's something else you're following. So if you're going to pretend that you don't, like there's a, there's a strange magic trick happening where you tell people to follow the science, but you're actually telling them, this is the value. Like, let's say safety is the value in terms of COVID. It's like, so absolute safety is the value. 
and we're willing, let's say, to sacrifice these, this and this and this value towards safety and now follow the science. But at least like we have to be honest about that, right? We have to be honest that it's actually not about science. It's about a competing set of values. And yes. so we, we should be able to discuss it at the level of values rather than, than have this idea that if you don't agree with me, then you're anti-science. That's, that's, a, that's, a that's a rhetorical game that's being played on you. Definitely, definitely. I, I would love to kind of pick up um, on this sort of science rhetoric, you know. So I, I'd like to think of myself as, as a kind of a critical thinker. Um, so I, I, I would say that I'm extremely open-minded um, as our audience is. I think that, and, and we're always open to hear kind of all sides. I think that one issue that I've struggled with is um, that I kind of do hold beliefs about evolution. Um, let's say the evolutionary nature of the world, Darwinism. Um, I, I listen to a lot of your content on this, and I really love your viewpoint on this. Um, how how do, would you best conceptualize your viewpoint on, let's say, Darwinism, on evolution? And like, how, how do you kind of take that aside from obviously the values and the, the beliefs which you do hold about the world? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, let's say, Darwin exposed some very important, let's say, patterns of being, right, in terms of how things come together and how they function and how they, they persist in the world. It's a good way to understand it. Sure. It's like, let's say, D Darwin identified certain values, which is like, there's a certain idea of necessity, like there's certain things which are necessary in order for the being to then continue into the future, right? And that's actually, a, it's almost like, a, it's almost, there is a philosophical aspect to that. Uh, and there are certain things which are less necessary, and those things that are less necessary will tend to get up, move out of the way. Like they will just naturally kind of happen to move out of the way. And so I'm totally fine with that. Like I have no problem with that. My problem is the problem of narrative. It's the problem of story. I don't think that Darwin offers us a story that we can properly live in and that, and that Darwinism offers us the right story to, to exist in. Um, and I can, and I can give you an, like, I can give you a simple example is please, please. that. So, so let's say that I, let's say that I talk about a, a, a work of art. Like I talk about Michelangelo's David and I tell you that the origin of Michelangelo's David, of Michelangelo's David is the stone. And then I, I explain that all the, how the stone came about and all the different pressures in the, in the ground and all of this that happened. And so, but it's like, that's not, that's not, that's not the story of Michelangelo's David, right? Just like if I would tell you that music comes from, you know, like that, the, that, that Beethoven's music comes from, you know, pieces of wood hitting on, on, on chords. It's like, that's not, that's not the story. Like you can't, we as intelligent beings, like we see, the value in things. We recognize it. Like you can say, you can argue with it all you want. But when I look at an apple, I am evaluating it. I'm deciding if it's a good apple or if it's a bad apple. I'm constantly, everything, every identity is actually teleological. That is, every identity is actually, our perception of the world is based on value. And this is something that is actually coming out in the science itself. It's like, you know, when you look at a cliff, you don't, first of all, see cliff. You see a place that I can fall from, right? If you look at a rock, you think, is it a rock I can pick up? Is it a rock I can sit on? Is it a rock that I could build with? That's what we're seeing when we're looking at the categories of the world. 
And those are, are real, right? Those are real categories. And so the problem with the, Dar the Darwin story is that we can't live in that story. Yes. Yeah. We can live, the like, so religion, what it offers you is a story that you can live in. It's a story that is taking into account the fact that human beings are, are meaning beings, and it puts that into the story. So if once, and then when you read, for example, the story in Genesis like that, then you realize that that story is all about that, right? It's all about saying God speaks, the world comes into existence, God sees and recognizes it is good, right? That's how God, the world is created. So it's all about meaning, value, and an act of consciousness, you could say, like this recognizing of, of the phenomenon. And then the same thing happens at the level of Adam and Eve. It's all about knowledge, knowledge of good and evil, you know, uh, and, then, and then once you enter into the world of opposites, you start to tumble, you start to fall into multiplicity. So it's all these, it's, so you realize that that's the story. That's a story you can actually live in because it's a story about meaning and about consciousness and about how we engage the world. Um, and so that's been, let's say, one of the works that I've been trying to do is to try to help people understand that, like say the narrative, the religious narratives, they're not the same kind of narratives as the technical description, right? So the difference would be something like, I can tell you how your car works, right? I can tell you how the carburetor works and I can tell you how the oil goes through this tube and how there's this and that. And that's, that's fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But what you really want to know is how to drive the car, right? That's what you really want to know. And you want to know, like, why you would care about it. It's because it can get me to the store faster than my feet. It's like, that's the story you live in. So it doesn't deny that, it doesn't deny the other story. Like it doesn't deny the other aspect of the, of the car, which is like explaining how it works and how all the fluids function with each other. But it's, it's lower on the hierarchy of, of what we are, right? Sure. What we really care about is what we can do with this and, and also how it relates to, to our story, let's say. Um, and so that's how I tried to differentiate the religious stories from the, the more scientific descriptions or, or even you know, natural selection. But there's value in, in the idea of natural selection. You can actually use it to understand some, symbol, some mechanisms of meaning as well. But it's a dangerous if you try to attach yourself only to that, because like I said, you can't really live in it. And you can see it happening. It's not hard to see. Like a good example is Brett Weinstein right now is that Brett Weinstein says he's a materialist, says he's a scientist, and is an evolutionary biologist. And constantly is telling you, we have to escape. We have to escape the story of evolution. And it's like, okay, well, where are you getting this idea? Like, where does it, does it come from evolution? Like, where does this idea that you need to escape the story of evolution come from? And, and it's, and, and you right away, you're now you've jumped into a religious world and you just can't avoid it because you're talking about value. You're talking about these mechanisms that aren't enough, just like the mechanisms of the car aren't enough. You need to escape into what's the point I'm driving my car to the store, not I'm thinking about the carburetor and the and all these aspects of the, how it's actually functioning, right? I completely agree. It, it is absolutely a mechanism. It's an explanation. It's not a vehicle. Like you wouldn't want to guide your life with the you know with, with Charles Darwin on, on your wall as a, as a as a kind of prophet. Um, I kind of love to tie all this up. Um, this sort of opening that we've had by you we've kind of gone back in time we talked about kind of where we are as a society you give a, a a very 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 coherent answer about darwinism um so i would just you know kind of think about my generation so uh, maybe a younger generation so i'm 25 now 
particularly people I've noticed in Generation Z and kind of more contemporary generations that I've spoken with, there seems to be kind of a dismissive attitude, I would say, towards religion and religious values or, you know, whatever it is. And I feel like perhaps it's that they're starved of purpose. Um, I'm not too sure, you know, specifically why. I think that like one thing that like we can't deny is obviously that religion was, is the birth of right and wrong. Uh, That's like how we know that we can opt towards secularism. Mm. So I, I would just love to just kind of just ask you for the person listening now, what would you say is like the real value in familiarizing oneself with the history of um, a faith or religious values? Like, what would you say, like the, mm. even if they don't necessarily believe in it, but just to kind of get to know the sort of literature and stuff on it? Yeah. I want to answer just first your first point that you said, and then I'll get to your question. Please. That one of the, one of the things that has happened, and this is something that we need to really acknowledge is that Christianity in the West became a materialistic religion. It, 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 it abandoned its mysteries, let's say. And that's the reason, like, I have a lot of sympathy for Nietzsche, honestly. Like, I have sympathy, I have a lot of sympathy for atheists because if I look at the level of the 19th century, 20th century Christianity, it's pathetic. Like, it's a yes. pathetic thing because they, they're materialist and they try to lay over on top of this this weird story about some guy dying on a cross. And it's like, what are you like? What is this? This doesn't make any sense. Like these two things don't, don't stick together. Uh, and so, and so I, I have a lot of sympathy for, for where people are in terms of their understanding of religion. Um, and so what I, what I've been trying to do, and I think there are a few other people trying to do that is to try to go back into the roots of the Christian tradition to go back into the, the, the highest thinkers of the Christian tradition and try to bring back a kind of metaphysical vision, let's say, or bring back a cosmic vision of what it is that Christianity was presenting as a coherent world that you could exist in. Um, and, and so that's really what I've been doing. And, and that is ultimately, let's say, the answer to the second, this, the, your question, which is that one of the problems we have, let's say the nihilism that we face is that we have no story we can live in. We, have, yes. we don't have a grand narrative. That's exactly the problem. And so because we don't have a grand narrative, we have fragmentary narratives which start to appear and they become completely silly at some point, right? They become as silly as fandoms, right? So it's like all these stupid fandoms that everybody has and they're all attached to all these fictional worlds and would even like compete amongst each other in their fictional attachments. And so it's like, you're not gonna get, a, you're not gonna get rid of like, religious conflict, it's just going to kind of devolve to stupid things where it's, it's all these, these strange things that people are looking, looking towards and people want to become, people get obsessed with Star Wars or Harry Potter or all these fictional universes because they have this desire to, to, to participate in a story which transcends them, something which shows them a little more about reality. And so I think that that's really the key is to, is to go back and to reread let's say, or to look back into Christianity in a way that helps you to see how you can live in the world and how you can exist, how you can be part of a, of a story, but not just a story, like an, a body. And that's, you know, when we talk about the, the church as the body of Christ, we can totally understand that now, 
it's actually a good time to understand that as we talk about things like emergence and the problem of how things have identities and you know the idea of complexity and complex beings, we can understand then what it means for, let's say, a body of believers to be together, to love each other in communion and to look towards the same goal or the same purpose and therefore to become a community. And that's what hum human beings are made for that. We're, we're made to be communities. We, we're community, communal beings. Um, and so that is really, let's say, that is the solution that going back into a religious way of seeing consciously will bring you. Because if you don't, it's gonna, you're not gonna avoid it. It's gonna come back in all these weird ways. Right? It's gonna happen anyways. It's gonna, it's gonna happen through all these weird fetish, fetishization that people have. Uh, you know, and these weird ideologies that people adopt and who that become religious to them, but they don't realize that they are, and they're more dangerous because of that. You know, it's like social justice is way more dangerous because it it doesn't even see itself as having some kind of religious structure. It just sees itself as this is true, this is real, and everybody else, anybody who doesn't just completely agree with me has to be eliminated basically has to, has to be canceled and right now it's just right now it's just canceling online but that that stuff boils out into the real world pretty fast and we've seen it happen it's people have there have been you know i agree, people that i don't agree with but people have lost their bank accounts have lost their access to certain financial institutions and that's going to continue if this culture continues and it's going to it's going to create a new a new outsider like a weird new uh scapegoat mechanism so one thing that i would love to pick up on that you mentioned there is you talk about these kind of grand narratives um how religion gives you a kind of story to live in and a clearly defined set of you know set of instructions to follow i wonder i was thinking about this earlier i was thinking kind of why people get so hooked on video games and the one thing which I think about with video games is that they have bright lines. You know what to do to get to the next level. They're clearly defined. You're not thinking about anything else. Is there kind of parallels between that and religion? Oh, definitely. There's definitely a parallel between video games and religion because also re video games exist in a religious world. <laughs> they, they exist in... So one of the things that I talk about, for example, is like the basic structure of a world, right, as... The idea of like the earth as a as a flat, let's say, surface, and then the heaven as a dome above, and this kind of and on the edge of the world is usually some kind of chaos or some kind of limit that you can't go beyond. You know, something like the, the ocean, this idea of the the great serpent around the earth, right? That you can't sure. you can't you can't go beyond. Um, <clears throat> and so so you have this structure in usually in the video game, and because of the game dynamics, you end up having to create centers right you have to have these these kind of central spaces out of which identities or stories will happen and then you move out into the wild right and then you come back to these to these centers where it's quests whatever kind of game you play will will often have these this quest mechanism where you get you get something someone that something is asked of you and then you go out you do it and you come back and then you receive your reward all of these this is all these are all religious tropes they're all religious patterns and so it obviously they they will give you a certain sense of satisfaction let's say to master some element of the game and so they have some value but the value is limited right because it is it is this broken off world that 
it that you know when you take your headphones off and you 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 move away from the screen right then then it doesn't connect to your life like it's a disc it's like a strange fragmentation of reality and so that is let's say when you think of when you think for example of this idea of like the heavenly ladder let's say and you see these images in dante of these of these heavenly spheres or the spheres of of a uh, of um purgatory moving up into the spheres of heaven that's exactly the same structure but it's the same structure as a video game it's like you have these levels and then you you attain these levels it's just that it's not it doesn't it's not artificial in the sense that it's actually about acquiring virtues and acquiring transformation in your transformations in your being it's not just about getting the magic acts of whatever i like whatever it is that you would do in a video game like acquiring some of some some virtual object, but it actually is a transformation of the person. So you could see it that way. Like the purpose of life is to go up the levels. It's just that these levels are actually levels of virtue and not just levels of, you know, rent these things that will go away and you'll forget about in, in the next few years. So. I really like that. I, one other thing I was thinking about when I was coming into this conversation and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't kind of describe myself as a, as a particular believer of a faith, I would say I'm more kind of of a spiritual um, type of land, uh, type of worldview anyway. Mm. But w- one thing that I've realized that I was thinking about was even though I, I wouldn't necessarily subscribe to a God or uh, a particular person, one thing that I thought about was that during hard times, during really tough times, I've prayed you know surprised yourself yeah. i've surprised i i was thinking about this I, I i've prayed and i've prayed on many occasions you know mm. um do you think that even people that don't necessarily subscribe to a religion should pray i mean it's yeah it's better than you know it's definitely better than killing yourself or whatever <laughs> or like or taking you know taking a hit of some drug or whatever yeah i i think so and that you might also be surprised at what happens if you take that seriously you know i was surprised to hear even sam harris say that he prays basically you know yes. in a conversation with jordan peterson jordan, jordan talked about you know like calling out and you know and speaking out into the world basically something and then seeing how it responds and he's like yeah i've done that and it works and i'm like what did you just say that you pray that's hilarious uh but it, but but then the idea let's say of praying to god right in the in the monotheistic sense is that you're 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 attending to the highest thing right that's the idea it's like we're trying to attend to the highest thing not not just these lower things because if you you can pray to all kinds of things and that will bring the fruit that it'll bring like you can you can pray to the god of money and people do all the time and then they get money but then they get money but they, they, that's all they get and they don't necessarily find satisfaction in that money or they or the god of or the god of sex and they pray and they pray for sex and they get sex and then they're like hey actually this is this is pretty shallow like at some point and so there's there's the idea that if you let's say the the christian vision or the monotheistic vision is that you aim your prayer the highest you can so that the transformation of your being will go beyond these secondary things will go beyond just getting more of this or more of that or all the the little gods what the little gods can offer you but rather the this idea of this infinite love let's say that god is that's what we're aiming towards and obviously we're not going to get there most of us but but the idea that at least if you're aiming towards 
you know, infinite love, the, the being of infinite love, then it's like, that's a pretty good goal to aim towards, right? Compared to all the other little gods, you know, it's like, you could, like you said, you talk about a video game, like you can really pray to the God of, you know, whatever game you're playing because you want to really succeed and you can have this, you can focus and you can kind of send out your desire to become excellent at it and it'll work. But, you know, I mean, what, what is, like, it has very limited value, let's say. Sure, sure. Uh, one thing, if, if we sort of head over to uh, symbolism and yeah. your work over there, which I, I really love. The other day I read this book. Uh, I should have it by you. By you, I think it is. This one by you, this. The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nowen. Mm. And, and I, I loved reading this book. It's called A Story of Homecoming. Hmm. And one of the things that I was thinking about, I read that book and it's clear that art, music, like music can like deeply like affect us, right? Like hmm. even like a single note can make hmm. like the haze on your arm stand up. Yeah. Why do you think that, like, why is it that great art, great literature, great music can completely like, just deep, so deeply affect us. Like, why is that? Yeah. Well, it's because we're, we're pattern, pattern beings. We are, we are patterned and not only patterned, but we are producing patterns. Like that's what we do. That's what differentiates us from the animals, right? Is that we, we, we participate and we produce patterns. We recognize them and we recognize them at many, many levels. And so one of the things that art does is it gives you a synthetic version of that. Right. So it's like you can you can you can participate in the pattern of a of a meeting. Right. And it takes for several hours and it's and it's and, and it gets a little off and it's kind of crazy. But if I can tell you a story, then all the facts are neatly organized. Right. They are they've been chosen and in a way that is that is really in the pattern. And so yeah. then when you see that and you're you when you recognize that, then it gives you it gives you this almost this little religious experience. And music is the same because music is almost pure pattern, right? Mm -hmm. And so you listen to a Bach fugue and then you listen to the, to the, let's say to the first statement. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay. And then, okay, where's what's happening? What's going on? And then you feel a little bit lost and you're not sure where it's going. Then all of a sudden you see the pattern again, kind of coming towards you. And then the restatement comes and you're like, oh my goodness, like, this is what, <laughs> this is what's happening. Right. I mean, I'm exaggerating. I mean, some people might have that reaction to Bach. I have a, a smaller reaction, to what, but it's there. It's like this little kind of recognition of the pattern, which is returning. Um, then you can play with that. Like you can create longing by bringing you into a mode where the pattern isn't coming back and, and you feel this longing and this suffering almost that it's not happening and you feel lost. Right. But all these things are, are condensations of what makes us human, you know? Um, and so, so that is what I, that's what I think. That's why art, because it's such a condensation of the pattern of being, you know, and that's what we strive for. We're being, we're, we're meaning beings. We look for meaning. That's what, that's what, that's what gives us value. I love that. I would we will definitely come back to that, I'm sure. Um, I, I was going back through a podcast, which I did before, and, and, and on one episode I said that for me, hell will be when the person that I could have been meets the person that I end up as. Mm -hmm. And I kind of said it tongue-in-cheek, um, but I would love to actually ask you, 
what would hell actually be like? Yeah. Like, what would it be like? Well, I'm a, I'm from the Orthodox uh, tradition and there's a, there's a particular view of hell, which is quite, it's not hundred percent, but it's quite prevalent in the, in the Orthodox tradition. And it's something like hell is, it's similar to what you said, but you could say it's something like, it's the person I think I am, right? Mm. Which faces God, which faces the infinite, the infinite good, let's say. And so you, let's say you think you're this, you're have a certain amount of good in you and you think you're pretty good and you think you've got it covered and you think, or you think you've been pretty sly because you got away with this and you got away with that. And it's like, you know, I, you know, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty shrewd person. And then all of a sudden you face the infinite good. And this, this facing of the infinite good can cause two reactions in you, right? It can cause you to recognize what's wrong with you. Like it can cause you to recognize what's off about you, all the things you've hidden, all the thoughts you've had, but you would never admit all the, you know, all the things you did in secret, but that you thought no one noticed that you did this, all of this stuff that you've done or that you've thought or that you've engaged in all of a sudden it's like, it's, you face it to the infinite good. And so either you can leave, let those things go away right. and you can drop them or you hold on to them and you close off. And so that's hell. That's what hell is. And so a good, like a simple example of hell is you, you do something extremely evil to someone, like something malicious, something really horrible. And then that person answers you by forgiving you completely and just like opening up their arms and saying, forgive you. I want, I want to be in communion with you again. And then you have two, there's two reactions. Again, you can have, you can say, you can, you can melt down and you can accept this and you can, you know, you can see what you've done and, and you can enter into this communion or you can say, screw you. Yeah. Right. And it can make you even worse than what you were before because it shows you your yourself and you don't, and you just clamp down, like you grit your teeth, you know, uh, St. Paul talks about this as this idea of having coals shoveled on your head, right? And so that's what, that's what hell is. Um, and so the idea, like C.S. Lewis talks about how hell is locked from the inside, right? The, you hold the key to hell. And, it's, and, and when, you're, when you fall into those states, you, it's you that's holding yourself there because you don't want to give up this stuff that you hold on to, right? These bad habits, this, these, these, these thoughts, these things you've hidden, all these secrets that we keep, all of this, you don't want to let it go. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to you in terms of understanding what, 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 the, how love can cause you to burn, let's say. That's a good way to understand it. It's like hell is actually the infinite love of God facing someone who doesn't want it. That's really interesting. And I would love to kind of flip that and ask about heaven then. <laughs> is, is heaven utopia or is it something different? Um, well, heaven is a, it's a, comp it's a complicated concept. And so you could say that heaven is the hierarchy of beings itself. Right? It's the hierarchy of values. That's what heaven is. It's the invisible patterns which call us to the good, right? And so right. heaven is that which makes you recognize that it's a good apple. And, yes. it, and I say it like in a, not even in a moral sense, but there is also a moral sense, 
which is that you recognize what is good. Okay. Those patterns that are actually, you could say extensions of God, we call them lo the logos, the logos of the world, the logi, the different aspects of God, which are upholding reality. That's what heaven is. And so, and so the, but the, the human person is the idea that we go to heaven is a really distorted idea about what, about how this works, how all of this works. The idea is that we're, we're actually meant to embody heaven. You could say, yes, yes. Right. So it's not the idea that we go to heaven, uh, although you could say that in a colloquial way, but the idea is rather that we're meant to embody heaven. That is we're we're meant to in manifest form, you know, manifest these higher things, right? So embody these higher values. And those are virtues, right? Those are when you become virtuous, you are going to heaven or you're ascending the mountain is a way to understand it. You're actually ascending the mountain of being. And then you come to a place where you meet God and you have an, an epiphany where, where all of a sudden the being, you know, the, the infinite of God manifests itself to you in that place where all the virtues come together, all the hierarchies of beings kind of come together. So that is, right, that is the spiritual transformation that we're called to engage in. And so that would be what people colloquially talk about going to heaven. But the, one of the problems, like you said, is that it's so, it's become so vulgar that people think that it's like you die and you, and you go to heaven and it's like, it doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's just, mm. it, it, it really, it's, it has sadly stopped to have meaning. But if you read Dante, if you read anything that is before the, before the 18th century, then you'll get a, a, a good understanding of what that means, like of what this transformation is. I, I, I'm learning so much here. I'm learning so much here. Well, one thing that I think that has confused me over the years that I would love to ask you about is uh, God. Is Would God kind of be like um, uh, an abstract uh, set of values or would God be a person? So... It's okay. So the way that Christians understand it is that God is a, is a, is a communion of persons. Right. Okay. Right? right. So that's what the idea of the Trinity is. Right. And so the idea, so the best way to understand is that God is the infinite source of everything, right? That's the first thing to understand is that's what God is. And the second thing to understand is that anything you say about God is always wrong. Like everything you say about God is always a compromise. Okay. And this is something that's just completely orthodox. Like this is not, it's not some new age stuff. It's, this is really what the church fathers taught is that <clears throat> God's, God's being or God's essence or God's beyond being is not actually a being is beyond being is something that you can't talk about. Okay? okay. But nonetheless is the source of everything, right? The infinite source of everything, which is beyond everything. And so, and it manifests, it, it, it reveals itself to us as a communion of persons as this, this communion of love between beings. And they're not beings in the, like I always say, like if you think that when I say use the word being, it's, it's like the same thing as your car or as, a, as, a, as, a, as an apple, then, then stop, then God doesn't exist then. Just, I just, I, I'm totally fine in saying God doesn't exist. If for you existing just means the things you can see and touch and quantify, right? Sure, but if, sure. But, but, but let's say God is beyond that level. Um, and so that is how God reveals itself though, as a communion of love. And, and you could say that in Christianity, the infinite itself, right? And the expression of the infinite and the manner in which the, the infinite expresses itself in the world is all part of, of God. 
you know, and so that's what God is, let's say, to you, because, and knowing that even that is, is a, is a compromise in language. Um, and so, so you can imagine that all of reality leads up to a point where it stops. So think about, think about any identity, right? And so it's like an apple, right? I can describe all the elements of the apple, but I, I, no matter how many elements I describe, at some point I, I, I have to stop and jump up and say, apple, right? I have to jump up. I have to emerge out of this quantity, out of this multiplicity and jump right. up into a single identity, okay? And so that's, it's like that for every being. Every being has that reality, which is that its identity is above its multiplicity, right? It's, it's higher than its multiplicity. So now do that for everything. So that everything, so people like to say things like, I pray to the universe, right? And it's like, there's something dishonest about that because what, how do you even, how can you say that the universe is one? Like, what is this unity of the universe? Like, what are you talking about? And so that's why even that has to jump up into something which is beyond, to something which is completely beyond all ways of naming, of manifesting, anything that you can think of or, or quantify. And that, and that is what, that is what the divine is. That is the, the, the infinite source of everything, right? The ground of being, you could say. There are different ways of, of, of trying to, to talk about this. Um, and then it, and then for, for Christians, especially it, it manifests itself as a communion of love. And then that communion of love helps you understand how things exist in the world. So it's like the fact that you can see that something is one and you could say, you could go as simple, even an apple, you could say something like the apple exists through a communion of love. And you'd say, oh, that's a stupid thing to say, but think about it. It's like the elements that make me recognize that something has being. They're all multiple. They're, they're, there's an indefinite amount of them, right? A chair is even better. Like there are all these elements of the chair and then somehow they come together and they join a single purpose and then they exist as one. And that's what love is because it doesn't also destroy the multiplicity, right? It doesn't, doesn't stop the chair from being multiple things at the same time. It's still legs and a, and a back and it's all those things are still there, but somehow they're able to kind of come together and become one. And that's, that's what, that's how the world exists. That's how everything exists, basically. I listened to your podcast with Jordan Peterson. Uh, I think by this point, I think I just got over a million views by yeah. this point. It's got something crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Re- really, really resonated with people. Um, one of the things in that uh, conversation, which Jordan said was that he acts as if he believes that God exists or something to those to those uh, to that extent, which yeah. I may be getting messed up. What do you think about that as a as a kind of concept? Do you think that that's a reasonable concept? Well, I think the way that I the way that I tried to phrase it with Jordan is that because he he takes it as a moral like as a moral imperative. Yes. Like, yes. Be, I act as if God exists and that's what holds me together morally. But it also is this heavy weight that he carries that is almost unbearable for him. Um, And so the way that I was trying to help him understand is that this has more to do with the way things exist more than even just morality. And so the first thing that acting as if God exists demands of you is not a moral code, it's attention, right? Because that's how the world exists. The world exists through this capacity to attend 
and to recognize unity and recognize phenomena for what they are. So if you attend to God, then that looks like all the things people hate about religion. It's, it's worship, right? It's singing, it's processing, it's facing the same direction, it's being in a group and all saying the same thing at the same time. It's like, that's what, that's actually what acting as if God exists, that's what it looks like. Um, because like I said, it, the, the, the most important aspect of God is how God becomes the source of how all things exist together. So if we're going to act as if God exists, we have to participate in how things exist together. Right? We, have to, we have to participate in communion. We have to commune together and exist as bodies and form, form, unit, form communions of love. And that's how we will act as if God exists. Um, and that if you do that, like it, it won't even matter. Like, honestly, at that point, will it even matter if you say that you act as if God exists? Like it become, it all would almost become like a semantic thing Yes. Yeah. because saying that God exists, it's like, I, I, I've said it on several podcasts where I have no problem saying that God doesn't exist in the, in the sense of exist as a, as a phenomenon in the world. Like obviously God is not a phenomenon in the world, right? God is a is super existence is beyond existence. So even there, it's like, uh, anyways, <laughs> <laughs> why, do you think that Jordan Peterson has resonated so deeply with Peters with people in this era in this generation? Hmm. I think that I think that the really the deepest part of that, I think the really deepest part of that is that is that he actually cares and people can tell, and I think that that's really at the basis of what what's going on is that he he really does care about people and about the world if you you have to just see them talk to people like i have been a taxi cab it's been it's hilarious i've been in a taxi cab with him where the guy didn't know who he was yet because he wasn't famous and the taxi cab just started telling him all his story like his whole story and i was like like who does this happen to and and it's like really deep conversation started right away and there was something about Jordan, his capacity to attend, his capacity to show that he cares about what you're going through and empathize. I think that that's at the core of everything. Um, and then he's also acting as a, as a bastion of, of just normal things against an insane world. Because the things he says, they're like the things your grandfather, like, or your great grandfather would have told you, right? It's like, you know, clean your act up, do, you know, uh, make up your room, you know, get a job, uh, get, marry someone, found a family. It's like just basic stuff that everybody should think of. But our world is so insane that we don't even recognize the value of that. And so I think that that's really what that's what that's let's say the second reason I would say why people have have been so attracted to him. I love that. And it's so, so good to, to have the great man back. It's been uh, <laughs> it's been uh, we missed him. We missed him. Yes. Yeah, well, I'm happy that he's back too. I hope, I hope his health will hold up, and I think that's the biggest that's the biggest hope. Absolutely, man. There's there's a couple of quick fire ones, which if you've still got the time, I'd love yeah, to go, go through. Um, I, I think that one area which I've been really interested in is AI. Yeah. So one thing which I'm kind of worried about is given machines the power of, let's say gods that just to be hyperbolic let's say we yeah. give machines the, the power of gods without the wisdom of gods mm. what do you think about 
um, this sort of emergence of AI? And do you have any worries about it going into the future? I have many worries about going into the future. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think we are going to we are going to witness uh, things that we haven't seen in thousands of years. And this is what I think we're going to witness. We're going to witness some pretty crazy phenomena and it's going to look, it's going to get wild because, so let me give you, let me give you just a little image of how, so in, in, it's like in an ancient world, what they would do is they would build a temple and then they would make a statue of a God. Right. And then they would like dress it up and then they would open its nostrils and the idea would be that they would like breathe in the spirit of the God into the, into the, the statue. And then the statue would become the center of the civilization and civilization would kind of turn around that statue. And so this is what we're doing. Like we're building a body for a God and, and everybody almost weirdly almost recognizes that's what we're doing, even if they don't have the words for it, but we can see it appear in fiction. We can see the story kind of emerge in fiction uh, whether it's like uh, Marvel's vision, for example, is a good example of that, where you have an AI that is more virtuous than everybody else. Uh, you have different versions of this that are kind of popping up in culture of this idea of an artificial being who is actually your superior, right? Um, and so this is it. Like you're, this is a, it's a very, so it's a very scary time. It's a very scary time because this infinite powered machine, like you said, people will just inevitably start to reverence it. It's already happening. We already reverence it because we view reality through it, right? We, the, first, the first page of Google search is, defines reality, right? Your Facebook feed, your Twitter feed defines reality already. And so it's already acting like a, like a body for an intelligence. And, and so there's, a, there's, an interesting, like there's an interesting story that I've been thinking about. I did a video on it recently in, in the Revelation, the book of Revelation. There's, a, there's this image of a beast, of a dragon, right? This, this like this dragon that 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 is that is does it makes a revolution in heaven and casts all the stars to the ground like all these casts all the angels to the ground and then through a, a different process there is someone who makes an image of this beast through different proxies and then it makes the 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 beast speak and when the beast speaks and everybody worships the beast uh, but it's the, it, there's someone making it speak let's say so this is the danger of AI is that it's never going to really necessarily be general intelligence, or even if it is or not, we won't know. You can't verify someone's general intelligence. Like I can't verify your consciousness. Sure. There's no way to do that. And so we'll never be able to verify the consciousness of the machines. But if, if we act as if they're conscious, that's enough. And then there, if there's a puppet master behind, then people will just fall in line. And that's what's happening now. The fact that Google and these companies are being taken over by woke ideologies. So they're being taken over by woke ideologies. They're framing our vision of reality and they're telling us that they're objective. They're doing all those three at the same time. So that's a scary moment. Like that's a scary, that's a scary reality. That, that really is this problem of like this idol that is being propped up and that everybody's looking to, and everybody's worshiping. Um, and they don't realize that there's a puppet master behind that is actually defining the miracles, let's say, that is actually directing the miracles to what it, to what it wants. Um, so I don't, I don't have a lot of hope in that, in that direction, especially with what we're seeing now. And, uh, you know, because, because Donald Trump seems to have, let's say, unleashed 
something which was already there, but it wasn't pointed yet. And now it, it's like as if he, he showed us what was happening. You're right, Donald Trump, by his kind of bombist way of being or whatever, exposed what was already happening but it, and accelerated it. And it's basically what Jordan Peterson dealt with. Like what happened to Jordan Peterson in 2016 is what's happening to all of us in 2020 and 2021. It's just happening. It just jumped a level. So what was happening in the universities and what Jordan was speaking out against has now jumped to national levels and, and government levels. And so it is the emergence of a God. Like, I'm sorry. You're, and it's, and the fact that it's coupled with AI is, uh, yeah. <laughs> Be scared for your children is all I can say, you know? Yes, yes. I, I don't have children at the moment. Uh, thank, thank God. I, I haven't been praying to the sex god, so I have gone. <laughs> so I would love to, to um, kind of finish this sort of segment. And one thing which I would love to give thoughts on that's been a real kind of emergence in recent times, or perhaps they've been around for, for a long time, I'm not too sure, but psychedelics, yeah. they've sort of come to the fore. Uh, what are your thoughts on psychedelics? Well, I've never, I've never done uh, psychedelics, uh, and so I don't, uh, I don't have a first-person experience of them. I'm a little worried about psychedelics. Um, I'll be honest with you. Like I've had, because some people that are coming to me, let's say to my videos and to my world, are coming from Jordan Peterson, who is, who is a proponent of psychedelics to a certain extent. Not maybe not like a just all-out proponent, but he's definitely talking about it, and. Uh, I've seen some people like lose it, to be honest. Like I've seen, I've seen, I was in contact with one person who, who, while he was in discussion with me and was, were involved in the discussion, went to, 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 to do ayahuasca and some weird new age thing in South America. And a few months later when COVID hit, just, and uh, last time I talked to him, he's like, he had been, hadn't been home in three days. He was in a panic. He was like freaking out. And, and uh, I haven't heard from him since. Um, and so I think that I think that if psychedelics has value, I think that in a world of scientists that that don't understand the world of values, it's like the worst thing ever. Because it's it's like if if it opens up this world to you, and but you have no mechanism of discerning what is above and what is below, like you can't tell the difference between an angel and a demon. But all of a sudden, you're like this scientific type person who's thrust in a world of angels and demons. I don't see that really as being a good thing. Like, I, I, I feel like people will be unable to discern what they encounter because they've lost the wisdom that, that, that maybe, I don't know, because I, I don't know enough about psychedelics, but maybe in a world that has wisdom and has a teaching about hierarchies of, of beings and hierarchies of values and the capacity to differentiate just differentiate light from dark, let's say, uh, that it might have not have been as dangerous as it is for us now. And there's a reason why psychedelics are part of the reason why we're here, right? Psychedelics in the 60s are part of the reason why everything's breaking down right now. And, and the, this, this kind of psychedelic revolution where people had these experiences and had no means of understanding what was happening and then, then started to destroy the hierarchies in the world just started to like attack any form of structure, any form of, of, of societal norm. All of this was all bad because, you know, freedom man and whatever, all the hippies were, were, were experimenting. <laughs> uh, and so it's like, I'm not so sure that all of a sudden bringing them back now 
is not going to do something similar. Like I don't, I, it's just going to, cause it, it's just going to accelerate the, the, the chaos to me. It seems at least. It's definitely going to open up Pandora's <laughs> box. <laughs> you know, I, I would, I would love to kind of tie everything off that we've spoken about today. You know, um, it seems like we are in a very precarious position societally, globally. How do we heal a broken society? What, what can the individual do? This is where I agree with Jordan Peterson. Like this is where I really agree with him and his, his solution is to become a saint. Like, and this has been the traditional Christian solution is to, to work on yourself first, right? To transform yourself, transform your what you can touch, like what's immediate around you um, and, you know, become a better person, become a better father, become a better mother, become a better husband, become a better, whatever it is that you are, right. Whatever it is that you're doing a uh, better friend, all of these, all of these things. Um, and then that will, will start to reverberate around you, you know? Um, and so that's in what we need to do. But I think also, reacquainting ourselves with the ancient stories and trying to see them through a lens, which makes sense for us today. Uh, you know, understanding where we come from, what are like, how we are here, having more on a better understanding of history, which is something seems the modern world wants to erase from us, having a better sense of history, a better sense of, of our stories and how we participated in them is definitely, definitely a way to, to go. I love it, man. I love it. My last question for you today, we sign off all our podcasts with, before I ask you to sign off and tell our audience where they can connect with you. My last question for you today, what makes a life worth living? Hmm. This is going to, it's not going to sound inspirational, but I think, I think that a life, a life worth living, sorry, but what makes a life worth living is a, is understanding the proper hierarchy of values which lead up to the highest. It's like understanding where things are and then seeing all goods at the level that they are. And so one of the things that makes us miserable is that we, we try to put too much good in things that are relative goods, right? And so eating, having a nice meal is a good thing, but, but we someone who puts all their their life in there, it's going to be disappointed. And there's a hierarchy of that. It's like having being in a relationship with a, with your spouse is a good thing, but even that is a relative good. And then ultimately moving towards the higher and higher goods. I think that that's what, that's what makes a life worth living because it gives you like a track and a path and you can actually see your progress, right? It's like, Oh, when someone used to say that before I get really pissed off and I'd like lose it. And now it's like, Oh, I can, Oh, I can kind of hold myself in and I can, I can, you know, I can stay calm and it's like, Oh, wow, that's awesome. And then you, and then you just keep going like that and, you know, move towards something beyond yourself. You know? I love that, man. Where can these guys connect with you? <laughs> and so uh, mostly I have a, on my website, the symbolicworld.com is where a lot of the, everything's kind of centered, you could say. Um, but you can also find me on YouTube, uh, Jonathan Peugeot on YouTube, and I'm on Twitter and Facebook, although less so, I would say, in the past uh, year or two. But for sure on YouTube, that's where my videos are, are going. So those are the best places. I will link everything below. Um, man, I have, I've been a huge fan for a while. Um, I feel like I've learned so, so much 
today. Please excuse my ignorance on a number of the topics, but I, I really, really do appreciate you coming on. I feel like you are uh, a force of good, a force of good. So, man, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks. I really enjoyed this, and I, I appreciate your your capacity to like really great questions or insightful questions in the sense that I can tell that you had thought about what you were going to ask before you asked it. So I really appreciate that. It makes for a good conversation.